Welcome to Say What You Love. I'm Mark Titus. This episode, we featured author David James Duncan, who wrote The River Y, Brothers K, My Story is Told by Water, River Teeth. These are tomes to me, Bibles almost, of growing up in the Pacific Northwest, growing up in love with wild salmon, and honestly have a big foundational part in kind of the way I see the world and you know look at things spiritually. Um, I can't be more proud or excited to bring David onto the show as a mentor and as a friend. We're going to talk about uh, how David is looking at the world and uh, seeing things in terms of a spiritual movement toward something bigger than ourselves, which kind of is what we're doing here on this show. And he's also going to read from his new novel, Sun House. I've been waiting for 15 years for this. I know he's been waiting for 15 years for this, and I bet a lot of you have been waiting for a long time for this as well. Enjoy the episode today. If you dig this, please uh, give us a rating and um, tell your friends, and we'll see you next week. Here's David James Duncan. Well, let's do this thing, man. I'm so I'm so excited. I've been just chomping at the bit all morning, and I've I've been digging in and doing my work. And uh, so, just to start this thing off, can you? Uh, where are you joining us from this morning? I'm in Missoula, Montana, and uh, it was eight degrees here this morning, and it's a balmy zero now with a little bit of sun shining outside. I haven't spoken all day, so I will occasionally sound like a 14 year old adolescent when my voice cracks. Uh, but believe me, I am a long way from that adolescent. <laughs> I'll have some fries with that, sir. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Hey, we, we had kind of a warm-up recently the other day. And as you said, I fear an hour will go like a minute. So I'd like to keep the door open uh, if you're willing to come back down the trail a ways. Because mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling we're probably not going to get it all. But um, just to start us out here, can you tell us a bit about your story and how you came to love the things that mean so much to you. I was born uh, on a volcano in Portland, Mount Tabor, Um, the old Seventh-day Adventist hospital from the windows of which, if I could have seen, uh, the Columbia River and St. Helens are a clear view. Columbia is the river of uh, almost my entire lifespan. I first encountered wild salmon when my grandmother, who was a realtor, was trying to get me to see God's true plans for my life and get me interested in real estate. <laughs> and she she made the mistake of taking me uh, to what is now the suburb of Gresham. A twenty and there's a, a creek called a 26 mile long trib of the Willamette Johnson Creek uh, that she allowed me to go down to play in. When I was five, alone, we did stuff like that in those days. It was a little bit safer world. 
And I crawled out on a cantilevered log, and I didn't even know what it was, but a massive male coho came right up to the top of the pool and looked me in the eye with its green, black, red, white totem colors and unblinking eye, and my mind was completely blown. And I just felt <clears throat> at five, I want to live where these things live. Later the same year, five, I was able to fish for a little while by myself uh, in the jaws of Solette's Bay, where there were salmon rolling and seals chasing them. And I had a little tiny pole and caught a perch solo. And then I caught a 12 inch flounder. And the first time you see a flounder when you're five, it, again, my mind was blown. I mean, it was, it was an experience of, there are other worlds within the world, within this world, maybe quite a few, but the first one I made contact with was the aquatic world. And that love has taken me so many interesting places and allowed me to encounter so many wonderful mythologies to learn that for the tribes, <clears throat> heaven was not celestial. It was marine. Hmm. And they talked about a totem pole in the center of the ocean that is the omphalos. That means the most important point of the world, almost like the creation point. And uh, for them, that would be the, the equivalent of, uh, oh, say, a place like Turnanog to you Irishmen. Uh, and, and, uh, and I just always felt, uh, compared to playing harps with angels and the folks I met at church, uh, that totem pole in the center of the ocean sounded mighty good. <laughs> and yeah. It, and it, it still does. It, does. it sure yeah. does. Yeah. Um, so water from the very beginning and, uh, the Columbia and its tribs, and that brings you to now. Yeah, it's uh, kind of passing over a lot in a hurry, but um, the, the other, it's really, uh, I have to say that the, the magic wand in my hand, the fly rod, added a whole another layer when I was eight and had learned to cast a fly and immediately put a size 10 mosquito through my right earlobe, but my dad got it out. <laughs> and, uh, and I hooked some trout. And uh, the phrase in the Bible that even at eight, I loved maybe the best, was Christ saying that the kingdom of heaven is in you. Mm. And every time I went to church, uh, I felt as far as you can get from that kingdom. And the first time I walked up a little trout stream tributary of the Zigzag River on Mount Hood, um, I was in that kingdom, just walking deeper and deeper inside it. And uh, yeah, it just, it is, it is where I go uh, to read the unwritten gospel. And I think uh, we, well, yeah, we're connected on, on so many root levels. And that's certainly one of them. Um, I had the 
good fortune of one of the early houses my parents had, uh, I think it was the second house they ever had, was um, had a, it was in what is now Microsoft land in Redmond, but back then was just woods and a Mm -hmm. creek, an unnamed creek that flowed through it all. And I remember um, we got in deep one day for my brother and I thought, you know, we, and one of our buddies were like, we're going to get super smart and um, take all our clothes off to, so we don't get our clothes wet. And, um, you know, brilliant, you know, stroke of luck and thinking in in our, our part. Um, And then we, you know, promptly got home and, and that was not a good idea, but back in the day, that was where, where we found God and found pure wonder. So I, I so relate to that. Um, we're going to get more into that uh, kingdom of God is within for sure. Um, but I'm going to put the leading story at the front here this time and, um, and, and get the anticipation over with. Um, we'll get to it because I, uh, like legion of other fanboys and girls, have long awaited your next novel. And the time is rapidly approaching when there will be a next novel. Uh, and I couldn't be more stoked. And I know there's a lot of people that are with me on that. Um, and if you'd like, um, I welcome you to read from uh, a piece or the piece of the excerpt of the essay you sent me. Or um, if you have something from Sunhouse, which is the new work, uh, that would be amazing if you feel like reading I do. it. Yeah, I feel like that. Sunhouse is a novel told in two parts, and each is a full-blown novel in itself. It's actually made of seven shortish novels, but there's a part one and a part two. In part one, you meet the main five characters and their closest friends. And every one of them, despite their foibles and flaws, is basically intelligent, kind, compassionate, and sometimes heroic. As heroic as really the human beings that I've been lucky and blessed to know my entire adult life. So it doesn't sit well with me when I look at the greased, crazed, self-centered people who dominate the product we call the news, which is actually just the bad news. And in my Mm -hmm. view, this dismal bias has erased for a lot of people, for a lot of miseducated young as, as programs like Head Start or Slashed, by insane Republicans, um, they've nearly lost the sense of what fascinating, compassionate, self-giving human beings uh, continue to be. And I've chosen to defend those kinds of humans in this big fat book. Because we can, you know, we can turn on any screen or hit our handheld device and see some self-centered tyrant or slander slinging asshole. Uh, And I choose to let my hero's positive traits dominate that huge negative bias. And as closely as possible without losing suspense and uh, the sense of occasional combat that that is life on Earth, uh, Sunhouse is as close as possible an asshole-free zone in which... (laughs) which, Oh, my God. It sounds uh, so good. These heroes... uh, (laughs) are trying to create the kind of close-knit, grounded human and animal community Mm. on a twice-failed ranch in Montana. 
this is the kind of community that the likes of Bill McKibben have said we mm. must create if we're to survive the curses of climate chaos that'll be with us for God knows how long. So the kinds of stories we tell now matter. And uh, I will contrast in a couple of just a couple of long paragraphs. Uh, first, um, the fact that I'm talking about a twice recovered cattle ranch in Montana might make you think that a Western would be a good genre for me, but um, hmm. the Western has some problems. <laughs> I'll read about <laughs> a few. <laughs> like, the fan, like the fans of a Verdi, Puccini, or Rossinini uh, libretto, the fans of a Zin, I got one too many Enies in Ross's name there, sorry. Uh, like the fans of a Verdi or Puccini libretto, the fans of a Zane Gray, John Ford, Louis L'Amour Western expect a prescribed storyline performed on an equally prescribed stage. The storylines, by and large, derive from the rote, racist, masculinist, triumphalist 19th century Wild West shows and penny dreadfuls from which the genre first sprang. The match that ignites a Western is a generic injustice, horses lost to rustlers, a ranch lost to a loaded deck of cards, Pa shot in the back over his mining claim, Sis separated from her scalp or cherry while trying to hang laundry. The inaugural rape, death, or pillage then ignites a hero so operatically mannered in his means of vengeance that John Wayne becomes a veritable Luciano Pavarotti and Gary Cooper a Placido Domingo as tempers combust, horses get rode hell for leather, and hot lead begins to fly. <laughs> in a Western, we know in advance that retribution will be enacted by, quote, peacemakers and, quote, gunplay upon a sagebrushed, bouldered, red, white, and blue-skied canvas. We know the nutty sidekick will win our hearts just long enough to prick them when he runs out into a crossfire and gets shot dead. We know we'll either sigh with lust or squirm with embarrassment according to our personal sexual politics the instant we sight the heaving bosom of the optionally sultry or feisty female love interest. We know the rich, corrupt patriarch will be protected by a militia of toughs who will fire hundreds of festively inaccurate rounds at our hero, while our hero fires back with an accuracy that over the subterranean groans of the hack Western actor Ronald Reagan keeps Hollywood stuntmen employed, unionized, and pensioned to this day. The genesis of the community in my novel can't be a Western because by that genre's protocol, my heroes would be seen not as eccentric, seminal founders of an interlocking, vibrant circle, but as alien hallucinations from a galaxy we'd need three or four shots of Rooster Coburn's whiskey to help us forget. This, this story can't be a Western because a Zane Gray condition visitor motoring onto the ranch property would be flummoxed to find shining greenhouses where the moon door outhouses should be, a barn that serves as a combination town hall, concert hall, zendo, dumpster, Catholic cathedral where the haymows, harrows, and dead tractors should be, and a bunch of other qualities. This story can't be a Western because in a Western, there's a West to be won where the residents of this community are conducting, as I have and my friends have, the labor-intensive recovery of a West decidedly lost 
first by its natives to a human invasion from Europe, then by its settlers to a stacked deck of East Coast robber barons, then by the majority of its residents to a hodgepodge of corporate fantasists and big energy or defense department earth rapists whose ravages are seen everywhere across the actual West, but nowhere in a genre Western. Yeah, just uh, one more sentence of that. Our story can't be a Western because the population of the West today is 87% urban. The horseback cowboys and family ranches that once hosted the genre have all but disappeared. And the enemy wiping out cowboying and ranching both is a politically hot-wired, anything-but-free market juggernaut that long ago stopped leaving behind quaint Western ghost towns like Shanico, Oregon, or Bannock, Montana and started creating ocean-doomed death rows out of entire low elevations, cities, countries, and coastlines. So, yeah. Uh, Thank I you. Could, yeah, I, we could talk about the dark side, and then there's another riff that is the counter. The counter to the Western is what I call, or my character, uh, really my characters kind of invent things on their own, calls an Eastern Western. And uh, that riff is about as long as the one I just read. So maybe I should say well, that for a Well, let me ask later. you this. Yeah, let me ask you this. And then I think we can, you know, uh, volley the, the Eastern Western into it. Um, the soul white hero, the archetype, John Ford, Zane Gray, like you're talking about, going it alone. Where has this brought us and what precipice do we find ourselves on in Sunhouse? Well, Sunhouse from the beginning is portraying people who are extremely aware of the importance of exploring their own psycho-spiritual depths and of trying to maintain some kind of a practice, uh, whether it's freely wandering uh, high mountain ridgelines or Zen meditation or... Uh, well, there's so many different things it can be. Um, and what wandering I, a trout stream. Yeah, wandering a trout stream. And um, the, the direction the novel takes really does take seriously. I really wanted to create a feeling of permission hmm. uh, for people who are trying to to develop a spiritual practice or recover one that they've lost because of their disenchantment with religion or also people trying. Um, one of the really heartening things that I also consider a practice is despite the dominance of massive, powerful lobbyist reinforced agricultural agricultural petro ag in the United States, that's compacting soils and washing them down into the Gulf of Mexico or the Pacific, etc. You know, you know the crimes. There's this amazing grassroots food movement that also enfranchises just local thinking and local communities, and that's huge to me uh, because my uh, daughter Ellie uh, is one of those farmers in Bellingham, mm. Washington, farming two acres and started a farm stand in a food desert and she and her partner are local heroes and um, to watch her up close 
hear from her, get wonderful, you know, accounts of what their struggles are and uh, the amazing amount of backbreaking late labor, clever tools, support by the community. It's, it's, mm. it's exactly uh, analogous to the kind of thing her dad's been trying to write about for 14 years. Uh, but she's in the That's... enviable position of actually doing it while her dad's sitting in a chair. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, man, it's got to be a marvel to you to see that manifest not only just in another human, but in uh, your own progeny. I mean, what a what a delight! Yeah, and my other daughter too. She's she's working with kids who uh, uh, have special needs, like uh, autistic kids, and um, which is closely connected to the massive amounts of mercury that were dumped into our atmosphere by uh, coal plants, and um, yeah, so they're both right in the thick of it, and so is my artist wife. I've had just unusual things happen in my life. Uh, an early oh, when I was nineteen, I spent a hundred days mostly alone, seven and a half miles from the nearest road in the Wallowa Mountains, um, and was reading wisdom literature there. And early on, I recognized a connection between mythology, wisdom lit poetry, uh, and landscape. And I've had some amazing texts in high desert Oregon river canyons and uh, high up in the mountains, uh, deep cedar groves along the nearly extinct salmon streams of the upper clear water and the snake. And um, it has added something that's very different than the kind of mindset you get locked into. For example, if you're a passionate biologist, painfully learning that the huge amount of material you know about something like wild salmon carries no weight in our current politics for those who just decide to blow it off. As you, as you know from your experience battling the pebble mine. Um, it's been very comparable trying to um, defend creatures that are be, being annihilated by four dams on a river that we do not need that create absolutely deadly slack water with a host of predators and all that. We know the story and we'll be telling it, but I'm trying to, uh, uh, in the novel, I'm trying to ground it um, I feel that our situation, Mark, is more mythological than it is political. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that a book like, say, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching uh, mm-hmm. is, is more important than the latest political screed uh, by either side of the, the huge divide that we're, that we're experiencing. And it feels really urgent to me. Yes. And I think there's a giant craving for it too. Yeah. Yeah. To remind people how wonderful human beings are by dragging a host of them into this, into this novel with my characters so that you can, you can hear the way John of the cross talked about mother nature. You can hear the way uh, Zen master Dogen talks about the intimate relationship 
between wise people and mountains, saying that the mountains actually love those people and love when they enter them, and that it does things to the rocks. It does things to every plant and animal for that marriage between the mountain and the mountain-wandering sage to exist. Mm. And there's incredibly beautiful poetry out of Taoist China and uh, both Shinto and uh, and Buddhist uh, Japan that uh, celebrates all that. And for a culture-starved American to stumble on some of that can, can really, you talk about wonder, um, it can really be uh, a source of of added depth and wonder to to go to those wisdom sources that are free to all of us. It's like we're all trying to write a fugue that will save the world, but not listening to Johann Sebastian Bach first. You know, we need, we need the maestro. And uh, yeah, I, I this is the sense I had from um, reading the essay last night, um, prepping for the conversation today, that. You know, especially as somebody in recovery who understands what isolation does, um, there has been this um, mythos of going it alone, showing no uh, vulnerability, um, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and by God, getting yours. And what struck that that kind of struck me as the the Zane Gray kind of archetype in in the writing but what's what's the other side of that um what's the eastern western that you're trying to bring into the world in sunhouse i really think mark this is a perfect time for me to read a couple of paragraphs perfect we're all in the midst of having our world reduced and our hearts repeatedly broken by a human assault on the planetary tapestry of life that's fast building toward an inconceivable climax. The magic of an Eastern Western enters through our heart's very brokenness. When East touches West, many hearts don't simply break, they break down into far older and greater ways of being. When East touches West, as hearts break in this way, we're suddenly renters on a glorious planet owned by no conceivable white guy and the fiercest possible love for Earth's landforms, living waters, living creatures, and every embodied soul, human and non, becomes entirely justified. When East touches West, no word, deed, or thought is free of spiritual consequences, and those consequences are our stern guiding light. When East touches West, Earth, fire, water, ether and air not only give us life, they continually manifest an unborn, unseen, guileless perfection that rules our world, Upanishads. When East touches West, bodhisattvas, begin saints, displaced Tibetan and indigenous sages and holy fools know so many things that the likes of Zane Gray, Ronald Reagan, and General Phil Sheridan never dreamed of that the latter's bogus knowings don't distract us from our true purposes for more than a few seconds. When East touches West, the central struggle is against cosmic illusion. Hmm. All blame is best driven into oneself. That's Ehi Dogen, founder of Soto Zen. 
All creatures in their pre-existing forms have been divine life forever. That's Meister Eckhart, who the Catholic Church condemned, although he has been redeemed as the greatest mystic in that whole tradition. All solace lies hidden. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good man. <laughs> yeah, we've been talking. You got yeah, a head start. <laughs> all, all solace lies hidden in the indestructible soul, Krishna. The law of karma is impartial and inexorable, Bhagavad Gita. And the justice unleashed upon a posthumous human spirit after a skein of subhuman investments in, say, Terminator seeds, fracking, tar sands, greed spawn, corporate-run disinformation machines, or bogus derivatives may, of salvific necessity, lead that self-betrayed spirit through the darkest of bardos to a short, brute incarnation as a paint huffer trapped in one of the hell holes their financial triumphs helped create. When East touches West, nature, the soul, the intellect, and enraptured angels. This is a quote from a Sufi. Nature, the soul, the intellect, and enraptured angels all proceed from the one many, al-Wahid, al-Kathir. And if the one many were to grant you every last thing for which you could think to act truly, his kingdom would be no more diminished than is the sea diminished by a needle dipped in the sea. That's Ibn al-Arbi. When East touches West, the first noble truth is suffering. The last frontier is unassailable bliss. Our enemies are our teachers. And a bad guy, in quotes, is as likely to be shot through with light as with lead. When East touches West, a river-spliced Montana meadow might be visited by an infinite guest that telescopes down into the heart of a vulnerable female tre trespasser, <clears throat> enclosing her in an invaluable presence that converts an armed and mounted attacker into a stunned feature of his own interior vastness. When east touches west, a high-elevation lake stilled to mirror a billion stars might drop a mountain wanderer to his knees, pierced to see that depth is height, Eckhart, and elevation is a blessing, not a conquest, Edward Hogan. Yeah. And there is no democracy in any love relation, only mercy, Jillian Rose. And knowledge is erotic, Jane Hirschfield. And the universe, by definition, is a single gorgeous celebratory, celebratory event, Thomas Berry. And sky is sky, whether it's over Montana or over Tibet, Tibet, Jetsumna Palmo. And all the way to heaven is heaven, Catherine of Siena. And we are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time, Thomas Merton. And I was just a container of love till love smashed the container and the uncontainable came gushing out. Jervis McGrath. Early each morning here on the Elk Moon, every man, woman, child, plant, creature, and geographical feature casts a westward-leaning shadow for the same silent reason, reason. Sunrise in the east. So I ask you, has there ever been a western without an eastern western beating like a gloriously broken open heart inside it?
I am uh, grateful for your uh, sharing this with us. And there is so much to unpack in there. I, I, I read I read this two times last night because I wanted to savor each word. And this is one of those uh, pieces of writing that you can't just blow through. You have to savor each word. There's so much in there. But what thematically, what I'm getting out of this is a convergence. Um, east, West, the line about... Um, your enemies being your teachers. We're, we're in this moment of unparalleled polarity and um, finding this convergence, I think is what's going on when I'm hearing this uh, from you. And it certainly feels like an imperative to me. Um, you and I talked at length for a while last week about synchronicity and, and convergence and um I was struck by a, a line. It's, a, I think, another line in later in the book um, that you sent to me, and it—I'll uh, read it here. Um, it's coming from Elk Moon Valley, Montana, June twenty-first, twenty sixteen, um, and it's the letter X, which I assume is ten, mm-hmm. running hand. Right. And it goes. It's a. Uh, it's a poem from Tom Crawford from the Eucharist, and uh, it goes: When the light is just right, if you squint. You can make out the wiring to the one bird they all are. Thousands of swarming black starlings going suddenly vertical, stalling, doubling back on themselves. In China, it's called running hand, this brush stroke that flows over the paper. Nobody in charge. We just had another convergence, Mark. (laughs) I was like, damn, I forgot to get that Crawford quote. I wanted to read that to you and you just read it to me. It's very nice. I, of course, had to pick and choose from the, the research uh, for this conversation, but that one, of course, needed to be in here. Uh, so the question I have for you in this I- idea that we're exploring here, what's a murmuration and how does this frame this conversation of convergence for us right now in this mm-hmm. moment? Because as I mentioned earlier, I feel like there is a hunger, a deep hunger among individuals for a convergence. Barry Lopez uh, was a distant but dear friend, uh, a son of the Mackenzie, as I've been the son of a couple of rivers, the Bitterroot these days, and and the upper uh, salmon streams of the snake. And the Tom Crawford thing you just read uh, is 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 a beautiful definition of a murmuration. In England especially, but in the Willamette Valley and other places that are really starling heavy, they fly in these vast patterns that literally blacken the sky. And it seems impossible when they form these shapes that that like literally hundreds of thousands of birds can be reacting with incredible skill. And Barry Lopez did a beautiful uh, interview with another friend of mine, Fred Bonson, in the Sun magazine, very close to the end of his life, 2018. And Barry um, says outright, talking of convergence, Mark, that uh, Mm. 
human beings need to become murmurations. We, ne we need to learn to respond. How starlings do it is they're responding to six or eight birds that are right next to them, literally coordinating the flaps of their wing beats so that they don't crash into each other and break each other's wings. And if you look at some of the uh, YouTubes of murmurations of starlings, uh, some magnificent ones filmed in Europe, and um, you will see falcons attacking these huge flocks. And it's amazingly hard. There's a, there's, you know, there will be 100,000 birds blackening the sky. The falcon will shoot right through the middle of it, and the starlings are so skilled at reacting in unison with great speed that it's damned hard for a falcon to catch a freaking little starling, <laughs> which if you watch one fly alone, it's not very impressive. Same as humans. The Zane Gray starling is not a very interesting character, <laughs> but uh, 100,000 starlings constantly forming and reforming in those running hand murmurations is, is just a, a sight that uh, can bring tears to your eyes. And uh, I love it that I was able to write to Barry after I read his, his call uh, for murmurations of humans and quote the Tom Crawford that you just read uh, from, a from a poem, too, that was appropriately titled The Eucharist, because that kind of responsiveness has a Eucharistic, a salvific uh, quality to it that uh, we are hungry, that humanity is starving for so yeah i i have taken your veneration for the, the eucharist the idea of sacrament and explored that in my own work um obviously with salmon and um this idea of taking something that is so demonstrably christ-like in its um giving of itself so life itself can continue. And what does that mean when you take that in together in community? Um, I feel like there is this, especially right now in this COVID time when we are all isolated and it's so acutely uh, pointed how isolated we are, this need for connection, for convergence. And so that image of a murmuration of birds moving in synchronicity and what I've just kind of naturally observed and you've pointed out to me as well, that there's an awful lot of us, there's an awful lot of people that are craving a spiritual depth that, um, and a connection to each other that we maybe have been disenfranchised from or isolated from or through our own trauma uh, disconnected from. Um, is that part of what you're trying to achieve in Sunhouse is um, grasp onto that notion? Yeah, there's a wonderful phrase that my friend uh, Fred Bonson has been writing some wonderful essays in Harper's and The Sun and Emergence um, about what is becoming of people seeking for exactly what we're discussing when Protestant churches uh, tend to be in a state of 
pretty near collapse. So many of them have been turned into community centers or I mean, just yoga studios or churches turned into to many other purposes. I've uh, done events at quite a few of those. Um, and um, there are the phrase that Fred uses to, to, to title a, a wonderful essay of his about this phenomenon in, in a recent Harper's is the gate of heaven is everywhere, which was said mm-hmm. by Thomas Merton. And one of the implications of that is, uh, oh, I've done work with groups of people who were literally resurrecting totally screwed urban streams that had lost their salmon runs. Most of the work I did uh, on this was in Whatcom County. And when you watch them get rid of the, the canary grass and bring in woody debris from uh, that would have just been uh, slash burned at logging sites and get that wood back in the river and bring viable runs of coho and chum and occasionally Chinook salmon in these small streams that were d- down to nothing for decades. And it all came back because they started doing things that, lo- that simply lowered water temperature and created more aquatic life. Um, it is, it's impressive. It's, that's Eucharistic to the salmon. I was also thinking as we were talking that, you know, what is, what are those beautiful movements of sockeyes as they move in unison up those Alaska streams that you know so well. Uh, what is that but a, an aquatic murmuration? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, sky and water on land. We're losing the last uh, migrations, you know, the great migrations of uh, African herds uh, because of water issues in a lot of places. Some wildebeest are still moving around in good numbers, become very hard for elephants. Um but yeah, these things are these things are what Earth created, uh, and uh, one of the things that really got out of whack was uh, shortly after the beautiful description of creation in the first paragraphs of Genesis. There's this one sentence about giving mankind dominion <laughs> that has been a real well. run amuck word it created manifest destiny it created genocide globally yep. it yep. Uh, it is a it's a disaster word and the word that was actually used rada r a d a h um doesn't mean any of the kind it simply it means stewardship mm-hmm. and and what kind of stewardship disobeys the mosaic scriptures and drives things to extinction. Uh, that is not radah. That is run amok manifest destiny. And that's uh, Tom Crawford has another wonderful poem about how we, we cannot let Christopher Columbus drive the car anymore <laughs> we got to get that guy out of there and uh i don't know what send him back to whatever back to portugal <laughs> well yeah and and you know it th- this this leads me down another tributary here about 
um, the way I was raised and uh, I, I know you were and, and a lot of folks were about dualistic thinking, you know, um, good, bad, Republican, Democrat, black, white, one or the other. And in that losing, like you're talking about the, the definition of that word, like uh, dominion, therefore we must go out and subdue all the earth. And that was manifest destiny. That was the imperative based on the um, writing that you shared with me from uh, your friend, Fred Bonson um, in that article in Harper's about uh, finding, uh, finding God everywhere. There is this idea of dualism versus contemplation and um, coming back to a more contemplative way of living and the hunger for that. Um, that is seeming to happen as almost a murmuration all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I know, you know, I had a personal experience of an awakening. Um, I know, uh, Fred talks about it in his article and I know you've had, you talk about it here at the head of the podcast coming to presence with that coho, that silver salmon and that eye and awakening to something much bigger than yourself. I had something like that when I was a young guy, I was reading your book, the brothers K in Bristol Bay. I was working in the processing plant in the summertime. And I had uh, the real blessing of meeting a mentor then, a a friend of mine named Uncle Lenny, who told me when I said, I just want to be part of this thing. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I'm reading all of these Native American wisdom texts and all of these other pieces of writing. And I want so badly to be a part of it. And he said to me, little brother, you, you already are. All you have to do is say thank you when something happens that allows you to see the world as it is. Very next night, I was working up on some scaffolding and it's 11 o'clock at night because it's, you know, sunlight there all the time in in Alaska at that time of year. And a swallow came and clipped my ear Mm -hmm. as I was taking in this grandeur of the belugas in the river and the sun, the golden light on the water. And I, this just happened. And I said, thank you. Um, And so then I think that that sort of awakening um, brought me into a different stage of consciousness. And then to go one step further with that, as a guy in recovery, um, I've been told that um, you've got this amazing paradox. Um, you you have to give it all away to have everything. So imagine if you found the mother load of all the gold or a, a keys to a cheese shop or a brewery or whatever your your gold happens to be, um, but you must mine it every day and then give it all away. You have access to it all, but you must give it all away. So with this as a backdrop, um, how do you see this movement and this time we're in about uh, this dualism that we've been led to grow up with versus a contemplative life? Yeah, one way that... A sentence I think I wrote in the Mickey Mantle Con, uh only the spirit has has the spiritual experience. So we're talking immediate the, the spiritual experience passes through us. It it feels like our experience, then it's over. And that's when 
I think our the, the, the murmuration duty is um, sharing <clears throat> sharing any sense you might have of what created the space that allowed you to get the hell out of your hot little head and allow something that the earth is trying to say to you to enter. And um, so when speaking of dualistic thinking, um, trying to own any such experience, trying to claim it as yours, trying to think that makes you some kind of spiritual authority is a tragic mistake that's likely to turn you into a spiritual snake oil salesman if you follow it very far. Exactly. Uh, That's the giving away part. Yeah, it is not yours. It's everyone's and no one's. Um, so yeah, just, uh, leave your, uh, leave your, uh, dualistic thinking. I don't know what, drop it off next time you're near wall street, and let it wash down a gutter into the East river. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, it, here's another, um, another wonderful description of this, uh, from the same article, but Thomas Merton quote from new seeds of contemplation the highest expression of man's intellectual and spiritual life uh, is the contemplative life. It is that life itself, fully awake, fully active, fully aware, that is that it is alive. It is spiritual wonder. It is spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life, of being. That, that was what I felt in that moment with the swallow. Um, I'm mm-hmm. guessing that had was something something akin to that moment with a coho with you, um, moving into a the next realm here of our conversation. How does this idea of spiritual wonder, uh, the spontaneous awe at the sacredness of life of being, how does that converge with our shared awe for and love of wild salmon? It reminds me of. The, 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 I would say I've, I, I read a sage who said there's no goal beyond love. I would also say there's no goal beyond wonder. If something is allowing you to enter that state, aspiration has come to an end. You're there. Um, like your <laughs> elder friend told you when you asked the question, you already are. All you have to do is look and say thank you. And... Uh, It's a little something I wrote uh, to conclude a project that Rick Bass and I did when um, a bunch of uh, series of wild and scenic rivers, starting with, well, and also the Columbia and the Snake, were threatened by ExxonMobil wanting to create a direct connection between Astoria, uh, Portland shipyards, and... um, the Alberta tar sands, the largest industrial project on earth. And one of, one of the most, if not not the most devastating. And, um, the last two paragraphs I wrote, I, I just been experiencing my region in a very different way. I'd ended the, Mm. ended the book with a beautiful, uh, with the Irish creation story. And, um, this just came out that I think is, is not a bad way to, to wrap up what we've been talking about. Oregon, mm-hmm. Washington, 
Idaho and Montana are a weave of places, weathery forces, flora and fauna, and wild intricacy, to which people from all over the world flock like grateful birds, simply to see earth being earth, see wildness intact, see the earth dreaming of beauty. Today we call these places ours, but the Northwest and Northern Rockies are a weave of life forms and mysteries we did not create and cannot recreate once the wild's ability to weave is ravaged. These great regions were pre-American and will be post-American. They are what enable biodiversity to diversify, natural selection to naturally select, and generation after generation of kids to muck around in river shallows with frogs, fingerlings, and caddisfly casings. These regions are governed not by such creatures as governors, but by elemental and celestial harmonies as powerful as earth's spinning, yet as intricate as an orb weaver's dew-bedecked web. These places and forces, to put it the ancient way, are our mother, the living terrain, her body, the flora, her clothes, the lakes, rivers, rills, her blood and arteries, the seasons and weathers, her moods, the birds, fish, fauna, humans, all equally her offspring, and every man, woman, and child striving to defend her life and the lives she supports, even in poverty or political impotence, even against seemingly hopeless odds, is not only a hero, but an integral part of her, hence every bit as holy as she whom they seek to defend. Hmm. Thank you for reading that. That um, that was from Heart of the Monster? Yeah, it's the last last paragraph of mine. And then Rick Bass will beat the shit out of you with his essay. That's such a grim book. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, but, uh, it, yeah. you know, it's hard, but it's... It's nece- it's necessary, um, and honestly, you know that I wanted to touch on one one last thing before we start wrapping it up here in terms of that hard but necessary. And we have this moment in Bristol Bay right now of, of reprieve, and it's it is just a moment. Um, we still need permanent protection for Bristol Bay. We need the uh, EPA under the current administration to veto the Pebble Project that would put North America's largest open pit gold and copper mine in the headwaters of the last fully intact salmon system. Um, But, you know, we do have this moment of reprieve, but those same forces, whether it's Pebble or some other guys of manifestation of it, um, if if we're to succeed in a real convergence, uh, what are we to do when those wolves come back howling at the door of a place like Bristol Bay, or when people like the likes of Tom Collier, who was the CEO of Pebble, and folks in China now say the same thing, you had your chance at the brass ring, the uh, chance to have it all in a sort of you know capitalistic sense, in a self-centered sense, and now we're taking ours. How? If, if there's a convergence happening among people wanting to live a better way, 
um, how do we defend ourselves against those forces that are going to continually come a knocking, as you point out in the heart of the monster? Yeah, the the scale of the destruction of which someone like uh, the Pebble CEO are capable can easily kind of overwhelm our thinking. Uh, And it's good to ground yourself in simple statements like Mother Teresa saying, we can do do no great things, only small things with great love. And along with that statement, if you're talking about uh, contemplative grounding, uh, and if you read a lot of wisdom lit, I've recently read the Dhammapada, uh, one of the, Pali Canon scriptures. It's all the Buddha's words. And he advises us, Mark, to keep our to keep our practices together mm. and to to share the company of people who um, who are doing the same and to care for each other and uh, to do things. I mean, many people have said what good is a constant fight to defend nature if you uh, never feed yourself on what you're fighting to defend. And, um, yeah, I think we, we, I think we have to be wary talking about the dichotomy, you know, the, the, the solo Western hero, we have to be wary of that in ourselves and in our activism too. Uh, we don't, we aren't going to accomplish anything without a huge murmuration of us, um, gathering to defend and, um, so I just think again of the way starlings are looking at the six or eight birds that they are just literally almost woven into making the same movements split, split, split seconds apart. And that's how the whole thing harmonizes and doesn't crash. And to go totally big picture, looking at the size of China and the depths of its ignorance and the ruthlessness of its methods, um, which were preceded by the ruthlessness of all European colonial countries uh, against the rest of the world. Um, It's too much. It's too much to think about. I don't think it's helpful. Uh, One of the things I need in my heart to be effective uh, is is a little hope and a, a lot of love and as often as I can find it, that state of wonder. So I would, uh, I would not spend too much time having done it myself when we faced down uh, Phelps Dodge trying to put a cyanide heap leach gold mine on the Blackfoot on Norman McLean's river uh, and the, hmm. the size and power of that enemy. And it just reached a point where we each did what we could and suddenly amassed uh, a center of gravity that caused the scales of justice to come down heavily on our side. And those incredibly powerful sons of bitches hmm. went home. And it, it, it's really the, my great frustration with what you face. I can't believe we still have the 1872 mining law. Right. Which was created to bring settlers west, you know, so we could. Yeah, it was just, it's just so incredibly outmoded that it's now being used to benefit completely cynical piles of money called corporations 
and has nothing to do with the reason it was written. Uh, but our government won't touch it because we're a corporate-run uh, government. Uh, well, um, on the other side of that, um, I wanted to uh, wind this down with a little piece, a little summary that you gave me about the River Y, uh, which was my first great love of your work. And um, it all of your work has awakened me in various ways and introduced me to um, and become aware of loves I didn't know were possible. But you said this about the River Y recently, and I, um, I thought it was something new for me. And I think it's a great way to kind of uh, bookend what we're talking about here today. You said in the, in the book, I also like it that she was hooked. She, you're referring to Eddie, the protagonist's girlfriend in the, Gus's girlfriend in the um, book. I also like it that Eddie was hooked by a woman uh, on a line so light that after the woman handed the archaic sapling rod and belly reel to former aspiring white hero Gus, he feels the hunter prey paradigm dissolve like blood in water and only unadulterated love sustains the connection between him and this astounding creature, this wild salmon he's connected to. In this scene, the, fly, the fishing hero of virtually all hook and bullet literature and Ernest Hemingway, too, ceases to be a fisherman at all. His heroism is in his self-effacement and total adoration of the most Christ-like wild creature in nature, the great self-sacrificer, wild salmon. That, to me, brings us around full circle to this, this love that we share for this wild creature uh, that gives of itself so that life itself can continue. And also um, little acts that you, we were just talking about mm -hmm. do little acts with great love. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in mind, um, kind of a little rapid fire thing here for you. Um, Want to put your paint a picture for you here. Uh, now don't, don't get too PTSD on me here. I know you've dealt with, fires in your region but if you can imagine if your if your house was on fire you obviously get your loved ones out first but in addition to them what's the one physical thing you save from that fire well uh, when adrian and i faced the fire um they came closest to taking our house came within a quarter mile uh burnt 80,000 acres and straight line to us. And just miraculously, uh, we went from strong prevailing wind, sending it right to us. The, the wind turned around and it went the other way and burned back on itself. Uh, she was preparing for a show in Seattle and um, was working incredibly difficult conditions, doing work with wax and caustic, having to wear a respirator, uh, in extreme heat in her studio, adding the heat of the material. And we were evacuating each sculpture as she finished it at, mm. at the same time. Wow. At the same time I had evacuated, um, I've worked on a lot of different, much simpler, all simple, all simple books compared to the one I'm just finishing, which I will never try to do anything like this again. I, I evacuated the simple books um, so they were in a safe place. 
But it, I mean, really, uh, the first thing we took care of were all our animals, including the chickens were evacuated. Um, certain little, you know, family treasures. Um, but, um, each other, I mean, yeah, people, uh, yeah, the, the ones we love, man, that's, and, and making sure as best you can, that, uh, your neighbors are okay. Been so moved by the way, when we've had two bad fires and friends I hadn't even called or appear in the driveway asking what they can help us move or, uh, helping me cut pine trees that were getting too big and creating fuel load too close to our house or, you know, all kinds of different, really, I've been more the recipient of the kind of question you asked me. I've been more the, the recipient than the, the giver of that because uh, the fires have been so daunting that could have easily had an event like, like Barry Lopez had uh, at the end of his life, losing his grove mm. on the Mackenzie and his archive. Yeah, a lifetime of beautiful journals. Nobody kept a better journal than Barry, and they burned right toward the end there. That, well, that's that's the um, spoiler. Is that that's my answer too? Is I've got my journals is the one thing uh-huh. that I would I would I would pull out. But let let's now call it your spiritual house is on fire, or it could be. Uh, what are the two most important things about your life, your spiritual house that you, you take with you? It could be part of your practice. Yeah. Well, uh, what I would take, I mean, I, I'm a penultimate pessimist, but I'm an ultimate optimist because there's this thing that makes us alive called the soul that way wiser people than you and I say, is indestructible but there's something in us that's indestructible and the stance i have toward having powerfully sensed that so that i have faith in that truth is gratitude and uh, i would try to evacuate my gratitude along (laughs) along with me wherever life takes me uh i want to take the thank you with me our friend Eckhart, the only prayer you ever say is the word thank you is enough. Mm. Yep. I heard um, in the rooms of recovery, the, the three most important prayers are uh, help, wow, and thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, if there's one thing you'd leave behind in this purifying and potentially destructive fire, what would that be? Uh, I could leave. I don't even know where they are. Uh, Every, uh, I I call it honorific hoo-ha when you win awards. (laughs) You know, know, my college diploma means nothing to me. Anything that, you know, like a a good shrink might put on the wall in their office. I don't have anything like that. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, this uh, honorific hoo ha I would shed, and also uh, I think the honorific hoo ha that lives in my ego. Uh, yeah, I would. Anytime the situation makes that beastly little creature uh, is a sheer illusion. When we have this, the moments that are deepest, uh, 
anything we can do to diminish the ego is, is a good move. So, yeah. That uh, and honorific hoo-ha. Yep. I will, I will take that along with me. <laughs> well, my friend, um, I'm so grateful for this time with you. Um, David James Duncan, author of The River Y, The Brothers K, My Story is Told by Water, and the upcoming, forthcoming Sun House. How can folks follow along and find out when they're going to be able to um, get their hands on this book and follow the, the work that you do? That information will be emerging in the next few months, but it's some of it, I mean, the important details aren't yet determined because those are conversations that my editor and I will be having soon, but haven't had yet. And um, if I were any good at prognostication, I would guess that it will be uh, sometime in 2022 that the book will emerge because it is a fat one and will will require a lot of uh, thought and editing, copy editing. And sure. Little Brown's a great publisher. So yeah, sometime in summer, fall 2022 is my best guess, but I, um, I will be putting material on my website and I'm now speaking openly about this book. It's caused a lot of people to think I must have croaked about <laughs> 10 years ago. <laughs> oh my God. Well, we have faith in 2022 is shaping up to be a hell of a year. Let's hope. And, um, but for 2021, let's stay in touch. And if people want to go to your website, what's the URL to go to? It's, you know, it's, it's just davidjamesduncan.com, but it's it's really in a total disrepair. The whole time I've been working on Sunhouse, I haven't given it the time of day. And uh, I'll be doing an update in a couple months. So this this kind of question that's just frustrating in an interview like this. Here I have this uh, audience and I'm saying, hey, wait, just wait a minute. I'm not, not quite ready. Wait. <laughs> So that's cool. I, 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 I had, I, God, dude, I've had that happen a million times. Like, um, the website's under construction. So, yeah. um, we'll, we'll put, we'll put in the show notes to, you know, they can, people can always get, uh, information from us as well. Obviously I'll, I'll post it, any kind of notes that are coming up when they are. Um, so until next we meet, thanks for the time, David, and, uh, best of luck in Montana. And, uh, Here's to the convergence. Yes. Here's to the murmurations of humans. Indeed. Till next time. Thanks, Mark. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was produced by Tyler White and edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water. 
and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.